Tonight, transgender men are bravely winning women's sports events. Where are the feminists? It's October 17th, and this is The Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign, and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. You know, we're in a brief moment in time, this generation, when women are treated equally before the law, equal to men. It's about to end, I think, as so many other great achievements of Western civilization are about to end. It's wonderful that you and I were able to witness them, to experience them, to live through them. Like living in Rome, I suppose, right before it was sacked by the Visigoths in the year 410. Like living in Constantinople before it fell to the Turks. It's sad, though, being at the end of an empire, knowing that the best times are behind us and we're descending. But at least we had the good fortune to taste it briefly. Maybe our kids won't. For millennia, the concept of women's equality was unthinkable. And in the course of human history, it's only been a blink of an eye that a woman could vote, for example, only about 100 years. And of course, that's still the case that women can't participate in many parts of the world, in parts ruled by Sharia law, for example. It's still just like the seventh century, women's rights-wise. But we've had a beautiful moment in the West, just a flicker in time, though, when measured against the centuries. Did you know it wasn't until 1967 that women were actually allowed to run? There you go. The first woman ever allowed to run in the Boston Marathon. It was a male-only sports event. I mean, why not let women run too? I, I can't think of any good reason to, let women, to not let women run. I mean, a woman running, there's thousands of people running. A woman running doesn't stop a man from running. Elite male athletes are generally faster than elite women Athletes at running, anyways. There are other sports where women biologically are superior to men, but what's the problem with letting women run a marathon? So when a woman, that woman there, entered the race 50 years ago, and she obscured her identity at first, as she sneaked in, they tried to grab her. I don't know if you know that. They tried to grab her and stop her, take her off the court. You see those pictures? It's quite something. But for the past 50 years, I guess 51 years, Boston Marathon and, and women's sport in general has grown. And it's been greater than ever in the history of, history of people kind, as Justin Trudeau would say. I think we're about as close to the mythical Amazons in Wonder Woman as it could be. I mean, there's women's sports leagues of every sort. There's many women's sports in the Olympics, something unthinkable a few generations ago. There's, there's girls' teams in schools and universities. And, and I see in hockey in Canada all the time, great girl athletes are, want to and are allowed to play with the boys. And no one cares if the girls are good enough. They change in their own change room, no big deal. It's so good, girl sports. It's good exercise, it's good esprit de corps, it's, it's great learning team skills, working with others. It's, it's good to give young women something else to focus on other than just boys. It's a different source of self-worth than just boys, you know, speaking as a dad. And, and you could even say it's a form of art, especially the more feminine sports. I mean, sure, they let men figure skate too, but like gymnastics, it's really a women's thing. Now, you might think I'm rambling. You might be thinking, what are you talking about here? But I'm not rambling. I'm actually being sentimental. 
I'm remembering that things don't last forever. Women are under attack most acutely these days by forces of medieval-style Sharia. A few weeks ago we showed you how young women in Iran are being arrested for the crime of not wearing a hijab or doing some dancing alone in their rooms. This girl here was, of course, arrested. But women are under attack in North America, too, by transgender men, as in men who say they want to be women, say they are women, and want to be called women's names and to look like women. We've talked about them a fair number of times before. In my view, it's extremely important not to be cruel to such people, how it's important not to discriminate. We've taken you through this heartbreaking study. Remember this one? Study at the UCLA. Um, by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, and it shows that about half of transgender people attempt to commit suicide. That's extremely sad to me. And the number who try and commit suicide actually go up with young men who take hormones to change their body or who have surgery to cut off their genitals and other irreversible things. These people are obviously deeply troubled and indulging their demands that they think will make them feel better. I mean, just a few years ago, it was listed as a mental illness to want to cut off parts of your body. It doesn't help them to indulge it. It actually makes it worse. That's not my point of view. That is a sympathetic study by the Suicide Foundation. Up to 60% try and commit suicide, depending on if they've had the surgery and the hormones. We've talked about being gentle and not being cruel. I think that's the way to be, don't you think? But how far does that go? Now, I mentioned this, and I'm sorry for the lengthy introduction about the golden age in women's sport however brief it has been in the history of time, because I see this story in the news, and I see others like it, but this one in the news. Transgender Canadian woman sets off debate about winning Cycling World Championship. By the way, before I go further, I don't know if you can see the top of the page there, there's a, there's a banner ad at the top of this same CBC News page um, called 14 and Muslim. They're doing a documentary normalizing young Canadian girls going to Canadian schools, still wearing hijabs like they're back in Pakistan. I tell you, women and girls, they're getting it from all directions, aren't they? Men are now competing in women's sports. Girls are being told to wear a hijab, not just by their Muslim imams, not just back in Pakistan, but now in Canada, in public schools, and now the secular state broadcasters making it cool to be submissive. It's, it's got to be tougher now than in a long time to be a girl. But back to the story of the day, to transgender sports. The subheadline in the CBC story is uh, critics accuse Dr. Rachel McKinnon of cheating after taking gold in women's competition. I'll read a little bit. A Canadian transgender athlete has become the first to ever win gold at the UCI Masters Track Cycling World Championship. Dr. Rachel McKinnon from Victoria, BC, finished first in the women's 35 to 44 age bracket in Los Angeles on Sunday. McKinnon was born biologically male. Yes, and she still is biologically male. She, he, whatever. Uh, look, his DNA is male, so I'm going to say he, okay? I mean, you can cut off body parts. You can take hormones. You can rename yourself. You can convince people to call you Rachel. You can do those things. But I'm sorry, biologically, that means scientifically, the science of life, you are still male. I'm sorry, that's just a fact, that's just science. I'm not being mean. It is no different than telling Elizabeth Warren that she is not a Cherokee Indian, no matter how much she thinks she is. 
Let me read some more from the CBC. She, uh, this athlete tweeted, first transgender woman world champion ever, with a photo of her on the podium flanked by second and third place finishers, Caroline van Herkhuizen of the Netherlands and Jennifer Wagner of the U.S. Look, I get it. The CBC is Justin Trudeau's state broadcaster, so they are exquisitely politically correct. And like I said before, it's a good idea to be polite, especially to people who are obviously having a tough time in life, having some trouble with themselves. So I get it. If a man said to me, if I met a man in person, he said he was a woman, and he called himself Rachel, and he took steps to appear that way, I might go uh, out of politeness. I might go along with it. And who knows? Maybe it would be such a convincing presentation, like that old movie Tootsie, that it would be easy to call them Rachel. Here's a story we've shown you before about a 52-year-old man who says he's not just transgender, he says he's also a six-year-old. He says he's six, and he wears a soother and a dummy and has dolls. I don't have the imagination to go along with this one. I'm sorry, I just, uh, I'm not that imaginative. He's clearly troubled. Um, there's a picture here, and I'm not trying to gross you out or anything, uh, of, um, this is in the Daily Mail, and this is from Daily Extra. Let me read the caption. The caption says, happy. Today, Stephanie lives as a six-year-old girl with an adoptive mummy and daddy pictured in Canada. She de detailed her life's struggles in a video for Canada's Transgender Project. Do you, think, do you think he's happy? My friend and our former reporter, Gavin McInnes, actually interviewed Stephanie. Uh, and Gavin tells me that the adoptive couple isn't really pretending to be a mummy and daddy. Gavin said that this Stephanie Walsh, Paul's his name, told him they sexually abuse him, as in they have sex with him while he's pretending to be a child. I'm sorry to tell you these things, and I hope you don't turn off the show. I won't talk any more about that. But my point is, I don't want anyone to harm Stephanie Walsh, Paul Walsh's real name, who actually has a wife that he left and seven kids that he left. I think he's harmed people. I think he's harmed his wife and kids. I don't want people to harm him, but isn't it clear that he's at least harming himself? And that by playing along with it, we are abetting that. Let me read one more line from this same Daily Mail story. That's a tabloid headquartered in the UK, but they did this story about this uh, Canadian man, Paul Walsh. So, so they love over-the-top stories. It's the tabloid culture. It's Fleet Street. And they're really hammering this, hammering this story up, right? But let me read the saddest line in the story. After two suicide attempts and a bout of homelessness, she found hope in the transgender community in Toronto. Yeah, I don't think Paul has done his troubles, do you? I think he's just being taken advantage of by different people, personally, physically. Even this newspaper article reads more like a freak show than a news story, doesn't it? Now, this Dr. Rachel McKinnon in the CBC from this uh, bicycling competition He's obviously not in a downward spiral like Paul Walsh, at least it doesn't seem like he is, but he's obviously out to solve some problem in his mind, to find some emotional answer for himself by being a woman that he couldn't get by being a man. And it's obvious, at least in one part, for him, it's about winning sports competitions. He couldn't win sports competitions as a man, he couldn't compete against other men, but he can beat the girls, can't he? I'm not saying that's why he's on transgender. I'm just saying that's an itch he likes to scratch. But look at the CBC. Just thrilled. Let me quote some more from the story. And of course, they call him Rachel, and they say her. And I get it. They're being exquisitely politically correct. You could even say they're being very polite. 
They don't want to be mean. And maybe if I met this person in real life, I would do the same thing out of deference to another human being, not wanting to hurt their feelings, being sensitive, being respectful. I, I wouldn't want to pick a fight. Why would you pick a fight with a stranger? But in a news report, in a news medium, is that really the place for deference and euphemism? Or maybe it's a place for calm, neutral reportage of the facts. Well, let me read more from the CBC. In an article in USA Today in January, McKinnon argued her competing is not a question of athletic advantage, no, 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 but one of human rights. Dr. Rachel McKinnon, we have to promote inclusive sport. Can you believe that? A man has a human right to say he's a woman. Okay, sure, say whatever you want. But to actually compete against women in a women's league. Oh, and because that's inclusive. No, I'm sorry it isn't, because it's going to drive out every single woman from sports. It's not inclusion, it's colonization. Talk about appropriation, that's gender appropriation. Every man who is not good enough to compete against men can now compete against women, and they'll call you a bigot if you disagree. Let me quote some more. We cannot have a woman legally recognized as a trans woman in society and not be recognized that way in sports. McKinnon was quoted as saying, focusing on performance advantage is largely irrelevant, guys, because this is a rights issue. We shouldn't be worried about trans people taking over the Olympics. We should be worried about their fairness and human rights instead. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry, not everything is a rights issue, not everything is political, not everything is about you, 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 not everything is a public therapy for you, not everyone has to play a role in your simulation. The girls that you crushed in sports aren't part of your project, they're just part of their own project, competitive sports for girls. Cycling is not a bone-crushing sport, but there are women's sports leagues that have physical contact, whether it's wrestling or basketball and soccer, uh, where there are often collisions. I mean, I mentioned hockey before, and you do see girls choosing to play with boys, but they're choosing to go into rougher leagues themselves. They're not going into easier leagues to rough up other people. And they still have helmets and body armor in hockey. This is just plain cheating to have a man compete against women. And it's odd when one man is, has gold and real girls are in second and third. What if three transgender men came? There would be no women on the podium. I'm sorry, this is just plain cheating. This is just plain roughness. But no one has the courage to say the emperor has no clothes here because you'll be called a bigot. I mean, he couldn't have been clearer. It's a human rights issue. Oh, sorry, Miss McKinnon. Obviously, you'll be violating his human rights, and obviously, you'll get a human rights investigation if you say this is wrong. Obviously, he has essentially said that. And that's not an idle threat. That's not just a speculation. Here's another story by the CBC. We've shown you this before. It's from 2016, so things are two years crazier now. Look at this. Transgender woman files human rights complaint alleging discrimination at Salon. Look at that guy there. Look at the guy. That guy there who couldn't even be bothered to shave for the picture. He calls himself Kirsten. That's a dude. A transgender woman in Charlottetown, I'm quoting from the CBC here, they're calling that guy, a, a, he, he didn't even shave for, for the photo. A transgender woman in Charlottetown has filed a complaint with the PEI Human Rights Commission alleging she was refused service at a local salon because of her transgender status. So that's just at a salon, in this case it was a makeup salon, um, just makeup and stuff. But here's a case from this year, here's two years crazier, 
Transgender woman files human rights complaint against Windsor Spa. Okay, a spa. So what, like, you know, you're going to get a facial or something? Yeah, no. I said I wouldn't get gross again. I'm going to get a little bit gross here. The owner of, let me just read here, the owner of a local waxing spa, waxing spa, is mounting a public campaign to clear the name of his business after he was served a human rights complaint for denying service to a transgender woman. Jason Carruthers, the president of Mad Wax on Walker Road, said he was surprised at the legal move since he had explained to the complainant that the spa did not offer Brazilian wax services on male body parts. I have no male staff, Carruthers said Friday. We are not able to provide that service. As in a dude walks into a women's spa and says, can you wax my lady parts? But he doesn't have lady parts. And they only have female staff. And he says, do it, do it, do it. And they won't. And so he sues them for 50 grand. Hey, you still going to tell Rachel McKinnon she's not a lady? You want 50 grand worth of lawsuits? That's Canada. A dude saying, wax my lady parts when he doesn't have lady parts. That's more invasive than a bike race, ain't it? But it's actually the same thing, forcing the women around you to pretend that you are a woman and do things that they would never do to someone not a woman. Women change together in change rooms, in, in swimming pool change rooms, and they, they, they go to the spa together. Women and girls can compete together. There are some things that only women and girls do together. I suppose it is the ultimate club. And that's why getting into it is the ultimate proof that you really, truly are a real life woman. That's what this is about. This is about forcing other people to join you in your fantasy, to join you in your simulation. At least Stephanie Walsh found willing people to pretend with him, even though Gavin says they abused him. But these folks want to force other people to go along with their delusion. And it's always women and girls who seem to pay the price, isn't it? Can I show you Rachel McKinnon's Twitter page? I'm not sure if that's a wig, uh, because uh, when he competes, he competes with very short hair. Look at the bio there. PhD in philosophy, assistant professor of, at College of Charleston. Tweets are my own. Public intellectual, trans woman, queer chick, strident feminist, athlete, vegan. I don't know if he's vegan. I suppose he's sort of an athlete, the kind who likes to compete against girls. But I think the rest of those words are not true. I don't think it's true that he's a strident feminist. In fact, I think he forces himself into women's areas, into women's sports, driving out women. He's not a chick, if by that he means a woman. And look at the hubris. This is a tweet here. He says, I'm an internationally recognized expert on the science and ethics of transgender inclusion in sport. No, brother, I don't think you are. I think you say you are, but you're uh, an ethics in an expert in biology and ethics, sort of the same way that you're a woman, sort of the same way you're a championship cyclist. That is, it's in your mind. And I know you can get the CBC to go along with it because they're a Trudeau state broadcaster. And I know other people are afraid of human rights complaints, so they go along with it. And look, I mean you no harm, I swear to God. But it's just not true. In fact, you are actually destroying things. You're actually hurting women and girls. You are unethical, not ethical. Now you tell me, am I being mean? Am I being a bully? Or is the actual bully here Rachel McKinnon? That's, that's him in the middle there. You can see the short hair. 
I'm sorry, you can clearly see physiologically that's a dude. But to say so is, what, is it illegal now? This is cycling. Men's legs are huge compared to women's legs, especially the quadriceps, that's the muscle in the front, the thigh, the hamstrings too. But look at, look at what he says as he boasts of beating those two girls who are clearly girls. This is his Instagram. Uh, he says, look, look at some of these hashtags here. Rainbow Fox Racing. Rainbow Fox. That's his name, I guess. He calls himself Rainbow Fox. Women who lift. I, I'm sorry, you're not, you're not a woman. I know you want to be, but you are not. Her thighness, quadus, quadzilla, quad goals. That's a bit more honest, isn't it? If you were born a man, which Rachel was, you have male DNA, DNA, you've grown up as a boy and then a man, you have a man's body, including massive quadriceps and hamstrings, and that's why you want a bicycling. Quadzilla, you got that right. You're not a girl who worked on your legs in the gym every day, eight hours a day for 10 years to build up legs like a man. You sort of got them because you're a man. Let's read some more of those Instagram tags there. Sports is a human right. Put it back up for a sec. Yeah, you see that there? I don't know if you can see that about uh, halfway through the middle there. Sports is a human right. Inclusive sport. Yeah, again, not really. It's not inclusive for the girls. You push down, pushed out. The silver medalist here should be the gold medalist. The bronze medalist should be the silver medalist. And someone not in the picture, well, they're forgotten about, aren't they? We don't even know their name, do we? There's another hashtag there, girls like us. Sorry, dude, you can say it, but it ain't any truer than Elizabeth Warren saying she's Cherokee. A little further down, social change, social justice. Sorry, this is not justice. These women did you no harm. They don't deserve to be punished. There, there's, there's, no, you know, there's no need for them to compensate you. You were not harmed. They did you no harm. There's no justice in you pushing out girls from a girl's... Cycling contest, sorry, that's not justice. Change, yes, I'll grant you that. But not all changes for the better, is it? I think it's a bit like the days of girls being run out of the Boston Marathon again, because they're girls. But hey, at least this one vegan activist can feel good about himself, and I guess the girls, well, they can go back to, to what exactly? Is there anything that they can do just as girls without some angry man telling them what and how and whom, and if not, they're violating his justice. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, as you know, here at The Rebel, we like to tell you stories from around the world because, of course, we're interested in the world, but also if they provide us any warning or lessons to us here in North America. That's why we focus on Tommy Robinson in the United Kingdom. That's why we focus on Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, why we talk about things in Sweden and France. But a very interesting case is that of Italy that for the last half year has been led by a populist nationalist democratic party that has run contrary to the European Union and the globalism that is promoted by Angela Merkel and others. 
It's a fascinating story, and it's something I'd like to follow more in the months ahead. And joining us today to help us make sense of it is a freelance journalist I've started to follow on Twitter for her reports, Alessandra Bocci, who joins us via Skype from Milan, Italy. Alessandra, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to uh, have you on the show. I follow you on Twitter. You have done a lot of journalism about the migrant crisis, about how toppling Muammar Gaddafi has basically opened the, the, the floodgates of migrants across the Mediterranean. Before we talk about Italy, maybe you can give us a minute on that experience, because I think it informs Italy today, this experience of mass migration in little rickety rafts across the Mediterranean for the past couple of years. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. So I actually started started working uh, as a reporter on Libya from Tunisia. And um, really since, uh, uh, since the overthrow of Gaddafi, the country, Libya has, uh, it's just, overrun by this uh, anarchical state, really. Um, and it's become a, a place where migrants just pass through and human traffickers can operate freely. Um, and obviously, the closest country in Europe to Libya is Italy. And so Italy has really taken the burden of this migrant crisis for the past few years. Um, so the, the crisis really began with the toppling of Gaddafi, which is something that France and the United Kingdom and the United States especially pushed for, and which Italy was actually opposed to because it had a good deal with Gaddafi at the time to really stop this migrant crisis from uh, taking place. Now, the migrants aren't just from Libya. In fact, the minority of them are from Libya. As you point out, they're, they're passing through because it's really a failed yes. state, a rogue state. Many of them are from uh, Central and Southern Africa, aren't they? Yes, most of the migrants are actually from sub-Saharan Africa, and I still report on Libya, and I have many Libyan sources who tell me that they're causing a lot of problems inside Libya as well, because now that the country doesn't have borders anymore, um, these uh, sub-Saharan militias can come in, in Libya freely, and they're really clashing with the indigenous Libyans. Um, so it's causing a lot of problems in Libya as well, and in North Africa in general, and it's something the... Uh, the corporate media really doesn't cover how, how the migrant crisis is affecting North African countries as well. Hmm. Um, now, for years, and I think it would be years, uh, this migrant wave was not resisted by international NGOs, the United Nations, the European Union. In fact, it was assisted. There were, there were government-funded NGOs that would actually I think it's fair to say engage in human trafficking. They would sponsor boats. They would, if not the actual ships paid for by NGOs, they would go out and rescue uh, dilapidated dinghies and bring them back to the uh, European side rather than return them to the African side. Is that right? Yes. So these NGOs that operate in the Mediterranean, they actually pick up the migrants uh, about, in some cases, 12 kilometers from Libya's shores, and they are—they were caught colluding with the smugglers um, to bring these migrants into Europe. So it's no longer a rescue operation. It's actually facilitating um, what is really a modern-day form of uh, slave trade. And... Um, Yes, they've been caught doing this before. Now the problem has more or less been resolved since this uh, new uh, 
government in Italy and with the interior minister Salvini, who's taken a harsher stance, which has actually uh, caused less death in the Mediterranean. Because, of course, the fewer boats um, leave the shores, the fewer migrants risk their lives. Um, so it's actually been positive, uh, not just for Europe and Italy in terms of security, but also uh, for, for these migrants themselves. Now, let's talk about that, because what we've been talking about the past few minutes was just to set the stage. I mean, a lot of Canadians know what happened in Libya. And in fact, we had 400 Canadian troops, mainly in the Navy and also the Air Force, help depose Gaddafi. It was, uh, I, I think it was just Stephen Harper feeling compelled to support Barack Obama uh, in whatever Obama's scheme was at the day. Um, tell me a little bit about this new political party. It's not a new party, but it's a new government. The Five yes. Star and the and the League. Who are these people? You mentioned Matteo Salvini, the Interior Minister. Tell me a little bit about the government that has been running Italy f since. Is it June? Yes, uh, it's a yes, more or less. Um, it's a really interesting question, and it's something that is not really discussed because it's a govern. It's a coalition between two very different parties, um, but who are united in this anti-establishment anti sentiment. So the Five Star Movement is really more anti-establishment from the left, and the League is more anti-establishment from the right. So it's this uh, compromise. It's like having Jeremy Corbyn um, sort of have a coalition with, with Nigel Farage, you know? Hmm. Uh, so it's yeah, it's really interesting, and uh, it's it's very scary for the EU because it, it has both those um, anti-establishment forces coming together. Well, that is fascinating, but it, obviously Matteo Salvini, and I've started to follow him on Twitter. I, Twitter allows me to translate his tweets, which are almost always in in Italian. He takes a very hard line against migration. Now, traditionally, the left is for open borders and open migration. Uh, are you saying that the left-wing part of this coalition is comfortable with Matteo Salvini's uh, decision to, to close the ports, to enforce the borders? Is the left-wing part of the coalition comfortable with that? Uh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, they support these efforts. There have been some internal, uh, let's say, there has been some opposition in some cases by some members, but the head of the Five Star Movement, Luigi Di Maio, has been very supportive of this policy. And he was the first one to actually call the NGO activities in the, Mediter in the Mediterranean as a fraud and as a taxi service. Um, so the Five Star Movement is a little complicated because they have so many different people in, inside the movement. Um, but in general, the leadership, uh, yes, supports um, uh, Matteo Salvini's stance hmm. on, now, on migration. Salvini seems very charismatic. I I've just follow, he's always out amongst the people. He, uh, he says things, I'm going to say in a Trump-like way, and I, I'm sure he would say he's different than Trump. Everyone likes to say they're different than Trump. But the commonality I say is he's blunt. And if a reporter puts something to him, do you mean to say? Uh, he doesn't back down, he doesn't blink. I, I saw him the other day saying, I'm for immigrants who integrate and are successful, but the rest are fake and they should go home. That's an incredibly blunt thing to say. But that reminds me of something Trump would say when he says, I'm sorry, they've got to go back. Would, does he compare himself at all to Trump? Does the media compare him to Trump? Are there any other similarities? Yes. Uh, in terms of personality, I would say that both of, both of 
them present themselves as sort of these uh, men of the people. You know, they're they're very close to just regular people and their concerns right now. And uh, Matteo Salvini is very much like that. He's very good with social media. Um, he it's he communicates in a way that the average person can relate to. And in many ways, he's also kind of funny and amusing. Um, but uh, yes, there are some similarities. And of course, uh, Matteo Salvini supported uh, Trump during the election. Well, that's that's uh, interesting to see in some countries in Canada, for example, our conservative party is terrified of any comparison with Trump and actually goes out of their way to disparage him. It's, it's interesting that Salvini doesn't. I want to talk about the news that caused me to reach out to you today. Um, you mentioned Salvini closed the ports. Until he came along, it was sort of an open secret. You get on a dinghy, you're as good as in Italy. And same with Greece. Greece took countless um, migrants. Salvini closed the ports, and that caused some of the migrants to f go further west to France. Now, tell me about the current quarrel with Emmanuel Macron. Macron has disparaged Salvini and Italy for closing the ports, but tell me what they've done in the last few days. So it all started actually before the summer uh, when Emmanuel Macron uh, called uh, Italy's behavior in closing its ports disgusting. Uh, it wasn't actually um, Emmanuel Macron himself, but it was his spokesperson. And then Emmanuel Macron never, never denied it. And he himself criticized uh, this government's position on immigration. But uh, France itself uh, has been very harsh towards uh, migrants. In fact, in northern Italy, the French police uh, invaded uh, Italian territory to push back migrants who were trying to get into France. And there was one pregnant Nigerian woman who ended up giving birth in a hospital in Turin in Italy, and uh, she died, actually, eventually. And she was mistreated by the French police. So it's just a hypocrisy, which is uh, very annoying for, for Italians, you know, to be lectured on welcoming all these uh, immigrants when France itself and Emmanuel Macron himself has sanctioned very harsh behavior towards immigrants. Now, I understand that a group of police, French police, tried to drop off a truckload yes. or a vehicle full of migrants. Yes, this happened in the last few days. So, yeah. Um, so I, I started way back. But uh, in the last few days, the tensions actually got much worse because uh, apparently uh, the French police just dumped a, a truck of migrants in uh, in uh, northern Italy uh, in the woods. And they were caught do doing that. And they said that it was a mistake. Some French authorities said it was a mistake. Um, but obviously, it's a very, you know, very strange mistake to be making. And uh, Salvini uh, didn't buy that. And he said that it was an international embarrassment. And also, w what are they doing with these migrants? They're just like leaving these people in the middle of nowhere, you know, unaccompanied. Um, and no human rights organization has said anything. Uh, and Emmanuel Macron has still not said anything about this issue either. Now, I've seen, uh, I follow Salvini, and you're right. Not only is he very, uh, a very plain spoken person like Trump, but he's got a sense of humor. He also seems, on social media at least, to be making a network with other nationalist populists around Europe. If I recall, I saw him with uh, Marine Le Pen of the Front National in, uh, in France. And I, and I see just this week, uh, just this weekend, I think, the Alternative for Deutschland, a, a similar party in Germany, had breakthroughs in elections in Bavaria. Is, 
is there an international nationalist populist movement in Europe? And should that be encouraging to other countries in Europe that now feel absolutely uh, subordinated by the European Union, Angela Merkel, and globalist open borders types like that? Yes, I would say that the lines are being drawn right now because we've had basically all the countries had their major elections. And so you have Austria, which has turned populist. Um, and then you have, of course, Hungary and Poland and the, and the V4 countries. And, uh, and, and now recently you have Italy. Um, I'm not sure the United Kingdom, what position it has. It definitely showed some animosity towards the EU by voting to uh, for Brexit. But at the same time, it's unclear what the conservative uh, government with Theresa May is doing about it. But in terms of uh, continental Europe, uh, you have these populist countries, and then you have uh, France and Germany, which are really the last pillars of, you know, liberalism, or the or re they represent the EU establishment um, against against this this populist uprising. Uh, one last question, um, and and it goes to how far gone things are. I sometimes worry about Sweden. I sometimes worry about yeah. Holland just demographically uh, and the open borders and, and the slowness of the political system to respond, um, I don't know if it's possible for them to pull back from the open borders globalist uh, direction they're on. Is Italy too far gone? If I recall, I think it was Salvini or someone in the coalition talked about deporting 500,000 illegal migrants. And that there was a very bold statement to make. I don't even know if it's physically possible to do that, let alone legally possible. But that implies that there's a huge problem that they're trying to reverse. Is it reversible? Is Matteo Salvini making real changes or is he just giving rhetorical comfort to people who want to change? Uh, he is definitely making real changes, but it's very hard because he's uh, just against this very strong current, uh, which is, uh, you know, the establishment, which, which has cracked down on him very hard, like they did in the United States with Donald Trump. So just in closing uh, the country's ports, he faced so much backlash um, and it was very hard for him to do that, but he managed to do that. So the next step, obviously, is uh, is the next promise he made was deporting those 500,000 uh, migrants who are in the country illegally and who therefore should be deported uh, if if their asylum application doesn't count. And it, and it and in most cases it doesn't actually. It's just about l less than 10% of asylum asylum applications actually uh, are valid. Um, but the problem is that the backlash he's facing, but he's making a lot of progress, I would say. He, he passed recently a decree uh, that ended or limited this humanitarian protection law that we had in the country, which really allowed anyone to come in and, and apply for asylum and really stay there indefinitely. Um, and he's, he's also uh, passed some decrees in terms of what he perceives as a threat of Islam in the country. Um, so he, the, the surveillance of mosques or the, or the immediate expulsion of criminals or people who have a criminal record. Yeah, I saw him announcing that he had deporting some, deported some imams. That sounded quite speedy. Well, yes. Listen, uh, Alessandra, what a pleasure to catch up with you uh, via Skype. I hope that we can talk to you again in the future. I'm fascinated by Italy and it's been a crash course for me. I'll be honest, I never really paid close attention to its politics until this charismatic figure, Matteo Salvini, came along. And I can't believe what I see every day. He truly is as exciting for me 
as Trump is, and, and it gives me some hope for, for the continent. Last word to you, Alessandro. What should people in Canada and the United States keep an eye peeled for in Italy in the months ahead? Well, I think um, uh, it, there's not much good reporting on Italy, but it's a very important uh, country right now in Europe because it's really... Uh, you know, it's it's the first country in Western Europe to turn populist, and it's actually the first populist government in the Western world after Donald Trump. So, uh, a lot is happening, and it's definitely a country that isn't uh, that's underrated right now for maybe some some reasons that have to do with an agenda in in the uh, corporate media. But it's very important for the future. Well, thank you for helping us cover this important story. I uh, am impressed with what I read from you on Twitter and, uh, and thank your, your you. journalism. And hopefully we can talk to you again. Great to see you today. Thank you. We'll speak soon. All right. That's Alessandra Bocci, a journalist based in Milan, Italy. And hopefully we can talk with her in the months ahead to see how Italy progresses. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about Elizabeth Warren's DNA test, basically saying she's the whitest woman in America. Alan writes, well, I am as white as the freshly fallen snow, but I have been told that I have some Mohawk blood from the family sojourn in Ontario. What entitlements am I entitled to? Where do I sign up for it? Can I teach you Ryerson or U of T? You know, that's, that's the trouble with a race-based society. And, and that's, that's how... Uh, yesterday I said, deal with the devil, soul or soul. Elizabeth Warren is thinking, what have I got myself into? Well, she would not be in this position. She would not be a senator if she didn't lie. I'm sorry, that's just my view. If she didn't lie to say she was Aboriginal, she would not have gone on at Harvard. She just wouldn't. I mean, I, I, I hear she's smart, and let's just take that as accurate. You got to be top 1% of 1% of 1% to be a, a law professor at Harvard. I mean, that's, that's the smartest people in the country. She got that job because of a set-aside, a racial set-aside. She would not be running for Senate without it. But the trouble is when you start to quantify either benefits or punishments based on race, well, you've got to quantify how much race. And there's different ways to do that. There's one drop. There's that one, so one drop of blood. If you have one drop of... I mean, how, how did you know if someone was a slave? How did you know if someone had to be at the back of the bus or the front of the bus? How did the Nazis know who was too Jewish, just Jewish enough, or, or not enough Jew, Jew in them to, to be a... They, they came up with a concept in, in German, Mischling, which means mixling. So if you had uh, one Jewish parent, you were too Jewish, you, you were sent off. If you had one Jewish grandparent, you were a mixling, I think they called that mixling second degree, and uh, they wouldn't kill you, but you certainly couldn't have a prestigious job. And then a mixling third degree, um, you, know, you wouldn't be in the SS or anything, but they, would, they just wouldn't mention it. And I know that's kind of great. In the States, slavery. Have you ever heard of these bizarre words like quadroon and octoroon? Have you ever heard those words before? That refers to the, the blood quantum, an octoroon. Is that a crazy word? That's like an eighth or a quarter. How much black blood? You you, that's crazy. That's crazy. And that's how they did it when you give and take rights based on race. That's how crazy it is. How about we just judge people, as Martin Luther King said, 
by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That's why I hate the Indian Act, by the way. Andy writes, let's not lose sight of the fact that in the middle of the circus that Warren tried to gain political advantage by playing the race card. She's no more Cherokee than I am, having been born in Eastern Europe. Yeah, and I say again, even this DNA test, and I tried to make this point clear yesterday, I don't know if I did. Um, they compare your DNA against samples they have in their big database, but there are so few actual American Indian uh, genetic samples that they have that I, I don't know if you, this came clear yesterday. This doc, doctor, this genius doctor, Bustamante, he substituted Peruvian and Colombian DNA for Cherokee DNA. I'm sorry, that, that's thousands of miles away. You can't just say, oh, well, they're all, they're all Hispanic. But Cherokee's not even Hispanic. Like, it, it, even the one one thousandth is a lie. The girl's white as mayo. I bet that was her nickname. Hey, may, hey mayo, come here. Hey, vanilla. No, vanilla, vanilla, if you actually look at it, it's got specks of black in it, it's, vanilla is off-white, ain't it? That girl's so white, she mayo. Someone with the, I'm guessing this is not a real name. I'm guessing this ain't the name your mama gave you. Whitey McPrivilege writes, I would just like to take the opportunity to say one more time that it's okay to be white. I know, I know, it's racist to say that. Somebody reminds me every time. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what does it even mean to be white? I, um, I think I'm white. I'm sort of pink and uh, yellow, you know, not, not the prettiest man. But um, how, does, how is it even relevant? I think we got to, I think what's so weird is that, I, I think, have you ever watched that movie Borat? It's an insane movie. It, I laughed so hard and I know I shouldn't. All the jokes were, were just bad. Like as in you're not supposed to laugh at them, but they were too funny. It's about this guy from, I don't know, Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or something who comes to America and does absolutely crass and crude things and everyone in America sort of cringes at him but sort of goes along with it. Like, so he goes to a, um, a you know, Borat's a character, you know, he goes to a dating service and he says outrageous things and he goes, to me, Borat is a comedy, but it's also proof of the American and Canadian nature that when someone comes over and they're rude and they're crazy, we don't call them out. We sort of say, hey, that's okay. We'll just, like, it was, it showed how tolerant Americans were of some crazy guy from Uzbekistan or whatever, or Azerbaijan. And my point is, white, liberal America, Canada is so tolerant so bend over backwards for the other that the logical conclusion of that, of bending over backwards for the other, for the Borats, is to hate yourself, I guess. To bend over backwards so far your spine shatters and you love the other so much you loathe yourself. I think it's perfectly fine and I think it's much healthier to love others without hating yourself. And you can love minorities, and you can love new immigrants, and you can help others, and you can help the Borats of the world come to Canada and learn how we do things without hating yourself. I don't know if you let me know what you think of my Borat analogy. Let me speed up here. On my interview with Hillel Neuer about Canada's controversial funding of the UN Relief Works Agency, Ken writes, 
I'm a follower of UN Watch. Kudos for having Mr. Neuer on. Again, I'm glad you follow him. And they do good work. He's based there in Geneva because that's where that whole human rights apparatus of the UN is. The main UN office is in New York. That's where the General Assembly is. But they have their human rights office in, in Geneva. And our friend Raheel Raza often goes there to speak truth to power also. So thank you for your compliments, and hopefully we'll have him back on. Well, that's the show for today. Lots of talk about different identities, racial, gender, or the like. I, um, I think it's sad. I think it's sad. Uh, imagine being a parent of a girl who trains and practices her whole life, has a real sisterhood with fellow girls where they value merit and hard work and teamwork and physical fitness and wholesome things like that. And you go to a competition and some dude crushes you. And if you speak out, he calls you a bigot. That just ain't right. That just ain't right. I think there's a, there's a way to be respectful and kind to transgender folks without, I suppose like in my Borat analogy, without hating yourself. I think the kind of, you know, radical feminist or whatever McKinnon said he was, that's just a lie. I think he's actually driving women out of sport and it troubles me. That's the show for today. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these. These are tough subjects, aren't they? You can't even talk about them in most other media. You say the word transgender, you're, they, just, they just say, no, cut off the mic in most, in most media because they just terrified about that. Hey, guys, I'll see you tomorrow. Until then, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. We'll keep fighting for freedom.